Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the US. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Bravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Today, we have the wonderful Dr. Sheila Morrison teaching us everything we need to know about managing myopia in our young patients. So kick back, relax, and enjoy the episode. For any of our listeners out there who are not familiar with who you are, would you mind giving us like a little bit of a background history? Sure, yeah. So I'm actually, um, so my name is Sheila Morrison. Um, I'm Canadian, so I grew up in Alberta. And that's where I did my first degree. And then my optometry degree is from Pacific. That's where I stayed and did a master's in topics related to scleral lenses and reservoirs. Um, And then I did my residency in corneal contact lens at Pacific as well. Practiced briefly in Canada and then transitioned for a couple of years out to Houston where I was on faculty at the College of Optometry there, really involved with the contact lens team and, um, you know, working uh, deep in the clinic. So um, now I have relocated back to Canada again. So I've been back for almost two years and I'm uh, at a private practice in Calgary, Alberta. So we're a really busy contact lens uh, specialty referral site. So it's a dry eye, all things contact lens. We fit pediatrics, every, every age and every modality from, you know, a six week old up to a uh, 105 year old in contact lens. So, and really busy wow. as well. So it's been fun. It's really good. So I guess we can delve into our questions um, on myopia control. Sure. Um, I think uh, a lot of the questions we have are questions that we've heard from other new grads. And it's basically about how to start implementing the uh, myopia control in practice. Because um, a lot of us don't know where to start or how to start. Yeah. Um, so I guess from the beginning, what are some questions we should be asking during case history to screen our patients for okay so for well I mean you guys get a ton of now in school and myopia control so you're coming out with mm-hmm. all the greatest knowledge right you're as smart as you'll ever be and yeah. the translation to what happens in the clinic it can be a little bit harder especially when it comes to myopia control because the population you're dealing with you know you're dealing with the patient the kids but it's actually really the initial encounters or the parents that you're having to screen and try to figure out because you'll have, you know, some parents will be seeking you out for myopia control for their kids because maybe they've done research or, you know, they've heard about it from a friend. Some of your patients will have never heard about it and you may be seeing their children, you know, for the first time or you've been following them for a couple of years and then see that they're a candidate for myopia control. So probably the case history, um, you know, for all kids in any clinic has to start early and what you want to do is start to look at risk factors from a very, very early age. Even when you know you have a new family with very young children, you really have no idea what the refractive error is going to be. You're always keeping a careful record of if they if they know you know what are both parents' refraction. Um, you know, do are there siblings in the family that have any refractive error? Um, you know, does your child spend much time on screens or how much computer time a day or how much, you know, how many hours a day on a device like a tablet or an iPad? So those are just really very basic screening questions that you want to start with. Um, We feel that any child should be considered for myopia control um, with any risk factor, including 
one or both parents that have a myopic prescription of any amount, but of course higher myopes are at a higher risk because genetics plays a big role. Um, any patient that has had a, you know, noting in the clinic from year to year, are they shifting in the myopic direction? Maybe they're not even really myopic yet. You know, would you necessarily prescribe a minus 75 for a five-year-old? Maybe not, but you're starting to have the conversation at that point in your screening and in your case history for parents to start to prime them on myopia control. Okay. I have another interesting question about that. So, um, I have talked to a few doctors who are considering treating infants for myopia control before they've reached the emetropization process because they'll be like a low hyperope or an emetrope. And we know that as emetropization goes on, they will likely become myopic. Have you treated any infants or toddlers for myopia control? So I, I don't be mainly because we don't really have a great evidence-based approach that really outlines what that standard is. Mm -hmm. Um, and also because some of the treatment modalities aren't really practical for really, really small children. However, I would envision that as we learn more about myopic progression and what the risk factors are and create more of a standard of what really, you know, what we're required to do for them. And once we understand more about the proper use of atropine, we have, you know, years and years of very high quality research on atropine. So you know, I'm absolutely not saying that we don't know enough not to use it, but in a very young population, obviously there's, you know, there can be risk factors there. But as we learn more about it, I could see that being an avenue that maybe we may consider implementing that at a younger age for kids that maybe aren't necessarily candidates for contact lens, myopia control, or mm -hmm. spectacles. I mean, we don't fully understand defocus anyways, right? We're working through that. And so um, I personally don't have very small children that I'm treating yet that are showing those risk factors. However, I feel that in the future, we could really consider that. And I have heard that be, I get asked that all the time, my parents too. Cool. Um, just another question, kind of like, you know, there's a, so much evidence that there's association with like near work and myopia progression. Is there like a certain type of near work that's more associated with myopia progression, like uh, like for example, like reading books or like being on the iPad is one more uh, worse than the other? So we know there's, so there's no hard evidence that really 100% shows that cause and effects relationship. Yeah. Although that being said, we definitely have associative studies that do, you know, we globally talk about the use of increasing use of near devices and iPads and screen time, you know, has been thought to be associated. And that certainly is something that I absolutely wouldn't dispute, even though we don't have that, you know, peer review cause and effect sort of study out there. Mm -hmm. There is enough out to show the associations. Um, the school of thought generally to what I understand is that light levels play a role. So I guess to kind of go deeper into your question of what I would kind of understand this to be, because I do get questions about this from parents. Well, mm -hmm. you know, is reading a book bad for my kid if all of the media says that I need to reduce screen time on that iPad, for example? The way that I understand this, and I've done some look, I've looked into this and a lot of other researchers have, you know, light levels are thought to play a role. Um, and so one thing that we, you know, again, all associative and kind of speculative is you know, the environment in which that maybe we're, you know, using these devices that give off light as well. Um, we don't fully understand that that could be thought to play more of a role than perhaps a, mm -hmm. a paper book that doesn't have the same light and we're not using it under fluorescence or whatever. The other thing that definitely plays a role is the working distance. Again, we're working through kind of what that is, but typically there, the working distance plays a role in when we're holding a screen 
this close versus a book out here at 40 centimeters, um, we would speculate that the closer working distance could play more of a role. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we see. Mm -hmm. For starting myopia control, is there like a specific guideline on like myopic refractive errors that we should be like, okay, you have this specific refractive error, let's start myopia control right now. Or is it kind of like, I think it's like a gray area. <laughs> a gray area, to be honest. There's generally, like, we kind of all agree-ish, um, generally. And if you go through different parts of the world, too. There's going to be a different level of aggressiveness in terms of what mm -hmm. is considered to be, you know, okay, there are minus three, we got to do myopia control. Oh, there are minus 50, but outside their amotropic age norm, we got to start. Mm -hmm. um, and so, number one, um, I would say some of the best resources that I've actually referred to or go back to what I, you know, picked up in our pediatric courses that we learn as, you know, optometrists and scientists that kind of show the emetropic development over time. And what I start to identify as anything outside of emetropic age norm um, is something that we start to flag. Then you build in, it's kind of like looking at, you know, glaucoma risk factors. You know, we kind of pick all the pieces together and not one single clinical, you know, thing that we find will make the decision for us. And so, um, you know, it's kind of on a scale for me. So I would say that if I have, first of all, a five-year-old that is, you know, outside of emetropic age norm, correctable with some form of spectacle correction, maybe a minus one or something, I'm absolutely considering myopia control at that point. If I see them shifting, if they're, you know, three and four years old and they're moving in that direction and they're maybe a little outside of normal, maybe when they're small, they're not quite as much plus as we would want them to be. I'll start having the conversation with their parents and then look at risk factors. So, you know, a four or five-year-old with two minus, you know, six or greater myo myopic parents with a sibling who's also myopic, who's a minus one at, you know, five years old, I'm going to start them in full-on myopia control at that point, just because of all those risk factors. Sometimes we wait and see kind of what the parents are both quite low. Maybe we have a, a five-year-old that's a minus one, for example, or a minus 50, which is outside of their age norm. So, you know, we think we want to start treating and that actually would be the very best thing to do. Sometimes we'll kind of look at the big picture as well. You know, the parents are maybe needing a bit more time. Maybe they're not ready for it. Maybe this kid is definitely not a candidate for contact lens therapy. Um, looking at parents with low refractive error, maybe we'll watch that particular child and see if they're shifting each year. Maybe they won't shift at all and we really don't need myopia control. Maybe they shift about a half day after a year. Definitely myopia control, I'd consider it then. That's kind of what generally I hear from most practitioners. Some will, you know, let it go a little more. I definitely, for me, wouldn't let them go more than a half day after a year um, without having that conversation. That's going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> How much progression should we be watching for between eyes? Well, that's a really loaded question because, um, you know, there's some really cool clinical evidence. I think we talked a little bit at the residence symposium. I can't remember if I gave you the reference for it, but out of Australia, Kate Gifford's group does a lot of work on um, not only myopia control, but also the whole binocular vision system and has done work on what is normal. And this is a big practice management tip because not only for you to properly evaluate what is normal progression each year, but also to be able to kind of sell the story to a parent who is doing myopia control. They see their kid progressing. What is normal? What is not, right? And all kids are going to grow and we want them to grow. That's a really important thing for all of us. We want our babies to turn into kids and to turn into adults. And so there is a level of growth that we would expect every year and it's not linear. 
So we can't say a half a day after a year is okay because that's not really okay for a 12-year-old. That might be okay during a growth spurt for a five-year-old. And that's because the eye does grow as part of normal growth. Now, there are some studies, like I said, that do have are starting to kind of show what that curve looks like based on age, but it is multifactorial. It varies. It's the same as a kid who, you know, you'll have some children who are, you know, already five feet when they're whatever age and others take longer. It's, you know, growth spurts go at different times for children. So that's one thing kind of bringing this back to what is important in the clinic you got to have this knowledge, first of all. So we, as the you know, prescribing doctors, need to understand that when every time that we see a bit of growth in a child that is under myopia control, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's when it's more than what we'd expect for their age. Sometimes if I see a half diopter in a minus four, eight-year-old, I'm thinking that's pretty sweet because you know at that refractive error and at that age, we do expect growth. And if we're controlling where it's only a quarter to a half a year, ideally it's 100% control, but you know, that could be for that patient a huge win. So as long as you set that expectation with parents and, but if you haven't treated them before, you have no idea what's going on and that just whatever, I would say if you see outside of emotropic age norm, if it's reasonable for them to be in some form of correction um, and at the age of five, you know, I wouldn't go further than that if they're progressing a half day after a year and have risk factor, you got to have the conversation and get them started. Okay. Transitioning nope. into that, um, if you start treatment with a patient, Roughly, how long do you tend to keep them on treatment for? Or what's your goal? What's your end goal for that patient? Keep them on treatment until they're done growing. <laughs> so yeah. it's one of those things where once we start, it's, you know, it's, it's not as long-term of therapy as, say, I'll just use glaucoma again, just I like that analogy, because it's another condition that we are responsible to understand all of the treatment options, all of the risk factors, and piece together this puzzle. And um, fortunately, though, the lifespan of the school-age myopic progression that we target with our myopia control therapies known today typically will level out. Historically, we used to say between like 16 years old, 17 years old. To be honest, today I actually see that kids are still progressing and I'll actually recommend, I'd say more than likely, we're going to be doing myopia control until probably like 18, 20 years old, just depending on how... You know, if we really see things just level right out and we look at the risk factors and there, everything seems to be okay. And there's other reasons in life to stop using myopia control. You know, maybe they have side effects from atropine or maybe they get a little distance blur from their um, current soft multifocal contact lenses and they're starting to drive. Maybe there's reasons to pull them out. Maybe we would consider stopping at 17 or something, but if there's no reason to, we used to keep going. <laughs> then there's also the topic of um, there's, you know, as you guys know this, um, but, you know, it's good to remind ourselves about the different types of myopia, right? So the type we target, just be clear, this is our school age myopia. This is what's been studied widely in the literature. We're not really talking about the adult onset or pathologic myopia, which is a whole nother controversy in myopia control. In private practice, in a different setting, what I get now I'll get every week um, a very concerned adult who's in their 20s or 30s who has that adult progressing myopia who has, is old enough and you know, informed enough, has done enough research that they're really seeking that service. And actually, in some of these cases, I'll treat them anyways. And it's, you know, we don't really understand what we're doing. We don't really know for sure if we're going to be serving these people because we don't have studies that show what happens in adults. But we certainly aren't harming them. And so... I've had some patients that are older that based on axial length, it would appear that there could be some slowing of what they report to be growth. Who knows, right? 
So that's really important to differentiate that. And so there's going to be some patients you're going to continue on maybe for a long time. Who knows? Yeah. It's funny. I actually got my, I started becoming myo in optometry school around second or third year. No way. I started thinking about that story. (laughs) And then I concluded to that because I was doing a lot of near work. Yeah. That possibly that's why I was a myope. Minus quarter, minus 50. Okay. So that, that happened to me too. And you know what that is? You'll find, you'll find that that'll probably, it might stay, but that's very, as you know, really normal. And part yeah. of that is hysteresis, right? Part of that is your kind of all the near work and then you all the near yet. Distance, so you need the extra minus. It's so funny. Yeah. No, I'm like, I, I, I hope you control myself too. That happens to me. Yeah. And now that, you know, especially being doing a little more work from home right now, this, this last couple of weeks, same thing. I'm going to look at across the window here and it's feels blurry from all of the papers. Yeah. And all the stuff you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we know there's so many options for myopia control. Like we have the glasses. Now we have the contact lenses, um, ortho K drops. Mm-hmm. Where do you start in terms of like, what factors play into you picking one treatment option compared to another? So first thing you're going to do is work that patient up. And so you want to, first of all, before you even begin to kind of decide what you feel you might recommend, you want to know what they're a candidate for. Then you want to look at the efficacy of what each of the treatments are, which I'll just briefly go over for you real quick here. And then you want to also take into consideration the patient as a whole human being, including their lifestyle and their family history and what everybody else does at home and maybe what their like, you know, capabilities are. So are they very, you know, very good, solid attention. They're able to do one task or they're all over the place and maybe can't do certain things, but could do others or dexterity or whatever. So um, as far as those treatment strategies, so um, your clinical workup first um, needs to include, uh, or it should is recommended to include um, a relaxed refraction. So you want to look at refractive error when they're cycloplege. Um, there's a variety of different thoughts on, you know, can we use 1% trypicamide, two drops, or should we use a full um, cycloplegic exam um, with cyclopenylate? And, uh, you know, it really depends on who you talk to. Pediatric doctors are going to all, prob- some of them might say recommend using cyclopenylate still. Um, others may say that 1% trypicamide gets the job done, it's quicker, it's no problem. I would say I'm somewhere in between lately. I've been using Cyclo again just because it's a little bit more streamlined in clinical practice when you're dealing with technicians and protocols. Um, there's no harm in choosing to Cyclo them. It's standard of care for kids. Re- nice relaxed exam to find out their refractive error, which will then tell you what their candidacy could be for contact lens options, either ortho K versus soft lens options, which, you know, that's a whole other lecture. We can, you guys could, you know, ask me questions later about what those numbers are. Um, and then you want to look at, you know, what is their age? Are they a candidate for atropine? Is this something that the family is aware of? Sometimes these things can be used in conjunction. And then, of course, spectacles are always an option, depending, right, on how high the refractive error is, mm-hmm. um, because there are limitations with the um, myopia control spectacles, just like there is limitations for ortho-K refractive error. I have said, and I'll keep saying over and over, how wonderful and incredible the research is that we do have globally on atropine. Um, I'm comfortable prescribing, we prescribe it routinely. That being said, we still continue to have a little longer history of safety and sort of um, understanding of what contact lens therapies outcomes are. And so there would be maybe an argument that some may tend to reach for contact lens therapy first, especially if you're a full scope practice that for myopia people that offers all the therapies. Um, now 
as we speak about that, the atropine studies are picking up speed and we will soon have more clinical information on exactly what the right concentrations are. Mm-hmm. You know, it recently changed even in the last 12 months from the 0.01. Now we're all doing 0.02 at the minimum, yeah. maybe even higher. It's always changing. So it's a tough one. And when we're dealing with kids, one thing that we can, can overlook when I lecture on this is, you know, a caution with things like that, unless you're prepared to be properly like doing a full BV evaluation and monitoring accommodation, I'm going to have to potentially wear glasses anyways with atropine if they can't read, right? depending on what their side effects are. And the research will say that there's no side effects or low side effects for these concentrations in reality. In the clinic, every kid is different. You have Mm -hmm. to measure it. You'll find kids that can't accommodate when you prescribe atropine, even in low concentrations. So the glasses options are picking up speed, though. Either the steam is, the tide is rising with the spectacle options. We used to consider contact lens therapy about equally effective. So ortho-K and Myopic or the soft multifocals are approximately equally effective, although the new, and nobody pays me to say any of this, but the new daily by Cooperision, the, you know, the MySite, the mm-hmm. studies have shown a little higher efficacy, but who knows, we're not really comparing apples to apples across these studies. Um, but the really great work done by the that, by that group, um, really, mm-hmm. I've had great results with the lenses. Um, historically, glasses have had a little lower efficacy, right? Um, closer to maybe it's hard to use a percentage, but that's what's in the literature. So maybe, you know, half as effective as the contact lens options. Um, but the new glasses options that are coming out are pretty amazing. Have you guys already heard about the DIMS lens and the, you know, the myovision? I know in the U.S. it's a little bit behind um, what is available in, say, Asia. Um, Canada has the myovision lens. I thought the U.S. did too, but maybe not. And um, I haven't heard guys, of them. Okay. And have you heard of DIMS lens? Only through deep on and wrap, <laughs> which we wanted to learn about here. <laughs> You'll get them. It's coming. We were actually supposed to have dims in April in Canada, which now is delayed, obviously. Um, but we've had my vision for co- quite a few years. Um, it's two different spectacle options that are uh, approved specific for myopia control. Um, and the difference really in the designs is just... Um, I believe the myovision is more of kind of like a, a portion of the lenses for the clear distance vision, a portion of the lenses for the, you know, the defocus, whereas the DIMS lens, it's kind of like little golf ball dots all over the lens that allows for a little bit more of that uh, retina receiving the, um, the slow stimulation or the stop signal, essentially, when we look at all the defocus theories. I think the efficacy measures, again, we're looking at studies sometimes that are not always designed the same, but... Um, the myovision lens is very good, about like maybe 20 to 30% efficacy, even though we're moving away from percentages when we describe these things today in 2020. Uh, and the recent reports on the DIMS lens is closer to 60 or full in some cases. So better efficacy with the newer designs. So um, really cool products. And I'm really excited about it. Like I said, for those, I'm a contact lens fanatic. I absolutely have no reservations putting contact lenses when necessary on any human being of any age. When there's an option, it is, it's still a piece of plastic we're putting on somebody's eye. We don't really need to do that for a child. If we could put them in glasses that are equally effective, maybe that's a little more comfortable for the family, lower cost. Why wouldn't we do that, right? So it really comes down to your comfort level and what you feel is evidence-based. Always go on prescribed based on what you can uh, support with mm-hmm. an evidence-based kind of backup to what you do. What's, what's the uh, atropine concentration that you start with specifically? Mm-hmm. I start with 0.02 or 0.025. Okay. 
just based on the new studies. I typically don't go higher than that just because okay. I find that anything over 0.025 definitely does have side effects. And for me, I haven't really found it necessary, although obviously we know the higher concentrations are more effective. I'm pretty mm-hmm. cautious with pharmaceuticals and children. So yeah. How about um, if we wanted to start implementing ortho-K lenses for myopia control in our clinic, um, what research should we do when deciding which contact lens company would fit best with our practice and fit best for our patients? So believe it or not, the, the best way for you to, um, my number one advice is actually has nothing to do with the science behind ortho-K. Um, all of our partners, you know, have had years and years of, you know, working on this. There's a couple companies that have more of a focus on myopia control specifically. Um, so you may want to key with some of those groups just because they'll have more of an interest in it and keep up more on things like, you know, what size should the treatment be and all these things within the pupil. There's always, it's always changing. So you'd be a little more likely to be on the edge of the technology for myopia control. If you go with one of are, you know, multiple companies that have a special focus with myopia control. Most important advice is actually to connect with the lab that is, um, you have the best relationship with. So do your research and figure out in your clinical practice, who do you have the best relationship with? Look at things like warranty policies, exchange, ease of warrant exchanges. Do you have to mail the lenses back? You know, how many exchanges do you get? What kind of support does consultation from that company offer you, especially when you're starting off for how to help you with your ortho K? What topographer do they take the software or the data from easily in that lab? Does that match with the topographer that you have? So it's more of a practice management side, actually, when it comes to starting off with ortho K. You're going to want to partner with somebody that you trust, that you have a good relationship with, you get good prices from, and that have a decent exchange policy on, you know, returns and exchanges. Nice. Um, and then I just had a question about um, the soft contact lenses for myopia control. Mm-hmm. The first one I do is for my site. Is there a specific amount of time that you need to wear the daily lens in order for it to be considered effective? Like, say, if a child was wearing it for like seven hours versus ten hours, or yeah. So the, the that's we get asked that a lot too. And so the answer is. Um, Ideally, so there's two answers. One is go just off the studies. And I think that the number that they used in the studies, I can't remember, I believe it was 70 or 80% of the time is what is listed. Mm-hmm. And so again, from an evidence-based approach, it's always good to say, hey, this is what is recommended. What I will also say is, you know, we do the best we can for as much time in the myopia control as possible. And alternative, if you feel that you're going to be sometimes needing time, you know, for some days without the contacts, you can also put the myopia control lenses in the glasses for those times. It's not going to be quite as effective as the times when we wear contacts, but combined, it's a pretty good job to help do everything you can for this kid. But in particular with that, with the MySight, with the daily lens, if that's the one you're referring to specifically, that one actually is one of the only ones that has looked at or did publish on the number. And I think it's 70 to 80% if I remember off the top of my head. The other studies over the years don't, don't really say the waking hours. Some of them do, some of them don't. I just think more is better. And then do we have natural view contact lenses available in Canada or is that soon? So very soon, very, very soon. So they've had them in the U S obviously for a while. Um, we're actually one of the test sites when I was at the university of Houston. Um, and so they're, they're on their way for sure. I think right now, um, I can't remember the, the dates that they were looking at. Um, but I, right now, of course, everything's just a little bit delayed, just like the dims lens dims in Canada was supposed to be here this month, not happening this month now. So we'll just see. (laughs) 
Since you're kind of did myopia control in both the States and in Canada, did you notice like a big difference in either countries? No, or no, is it- it's the same. It's globally. It's um, the different. One of the differences is from a practice management perspective. Mm-hmm. It's actually really assisted me in Canada to kind of, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's just in the U.S. There's a lot more um, emphasis in we all are HIPAA compliant. Well, in mm-hmm. privacy controlled and ultimately avoiding lawsuits, right? Yeah. Um, and so if anything in the U S it's a little bit more stringent when it comes to putting together your materials for your clinic, there's certain things you're allowed to say, not say, you never want to publish things that, you know, say, Hey, we do myopia control. These are the therapies for myopia control. Don't put that on the internet because it's not approved in Canada. There's a little different kind of flavor with how we're, you know, are allowed to communicate and same thing for Mm -hmm. Australia or China. Everybody has their own culture of what is acceptable medically to be putting in your advertising. So that would be mm-hmm. a difference. But what it resulted in actually was just a very tedious procedure, especially being at a school where it's like also the, you know, bureaucracy of the kind of the rules and the programs mm-hmm. and making it for the students and all these like, you know, guidelines and protocols. That is actually what I would recommend doing in any clinical practice, put in that work initially to get all those yeah. little things in order, because it's quite complex, believe it or not, all the billing, all of the, you know, how do you set it up with your staff? What is the exam flow? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, You did already kind of mention that you prefer to do like a cyclopegic refraction on most of the patients. And and that's kind of like um, part of your workup with these Mm -hmm. patients. But um, what other kind of clinical equipment is, you know, in your opinion, absolutely essential for you to have in your practice if you want to start myopia control? Kind of depends on what you want to do with your practice. So if you have the attitude of, I know that I need to do myopia control, I am willing to refer out for certain things as necessary. Your job is to be very well educated. Look at the equipment that you have and what focuses you have in your practice, because there's also the whole side of what is the financial gain for you. So if you're going to be wanting to have Um, a full scope myopia practice that's profitable, then I'll give you all the equipment that you need. But you also have to be prepared to be putting in the right energy into that part of your practice to have the volume, right? If you are, um, I would say, you know, some of the bare minimums just to be able to work a patient up, we can all use a slit lamp, right? We can all do a cycloplegic refraction. Topography is really important um, for any kind of candidacy if you're going to be considering, if you want to do myopia control, Um, you know, you really should keep those tools at a minimum, kind of at a basic level, maybe the harder ones you refer out if that's not your favorite top, you know, if that's not your favorite focus in your practice. Um, But topographer to me is really important if we're going to be doing, you know, any, especially orthocane. Axial length um, is a controversial one because most practices right now, you know, it can be costly if you're looking at a Lenstar, Iowa master. Um, We used to actually refer patients out. Um, When I got back to Canada, you know, I came from, same as you guys, all the bells and whistles, right? So moving mm-hmm. all the stuff that you have in your toolbox when you're a resident or a student or have all these dreams of all this, you know, equipment, you know. It's, like <laughs> it's all shattered on that one. <laughs> the dreams are gone. It's like, oh, I have like my, like, you know, occluder. What am I going to do? <laughs> but I figured out. So when I came to, we knew we had, you know, we, I very quickly revamped a busy, like a big myopia clinic as soon as I stepped foot back here because, the group here that I'm with is very forward thinking and they already were doing myopic control. We just kind of put more of a focus in it. They were, you know, very supportive and we all kind of worked together on that. And initially 
seeing as coming from the US where it's the standard, right? We started referring out actually. So I would send my kids twice a year to us, our surgical center partners where they did have Iowa Master. There's equipment you can buy for a lot less now. Um, high quality um, A scans that can actually look at um, fairly accurately, probably similar to what an Iowa Master can do. But I think axial length is really important. Now you can definitely get um, a very close correlation with um, axial length growth if you do a cycloplegic refraction. That's work out of Australia. We know that's true. If you don't have axial length, you just have to do the cyclo more often on your kids. Um, the time that that's very inconvenient is for ortho okay. That's why I don't do that. I, that's why I do axial length 100% of the time. Um, and then just all the usual contact lens equipment, um, pediatric um, sort of focus in your clinic, whether it's um, an area for a wall of fame or other things that make it more of a kid-friendly space is really good for you when you're starting off with myopia control, just to get everybody to feel at ease and the kids are going to talk about it to their friends. Word of mouth referrals are huge. So um, for myopia control or any like um, specialty contact lens, what is anything like considered medically necessary and can healthcare cover this or in private insurance companies cover it, these kind of treatments or is everything? Not, not at this time. It's all um, right now. Currently it's mostly out of pocket. I've had a few myopia control families that had, you know, open health spending that I've written letters for and they've used that um, at this time. And when I was in the U S it was the same. It's all out of pocket. <laughs> okay. I know kind of like educating the parents about myopia can be a difficult task. Do you use any resources to educate the parents on um, starting the treatment or kind of like maybe planting a seed for in the future? Um, definitely. There are, um, we have created a full package for um, parents that starts off with a brochure and our website yeah. is just full of resources and we routinely will refer to peer-reviewed literature. I have all kinds of different topics related to contact lens safety or what is effective and you know how the treatments work at a level that starts very basic and all the way up to very complex for those families that um, you know, do have the ability to kind of learn at a little higher level. Mm -hmm. What we want to know for ourselves and our listeners is, you know, what's the best way to stay up to date with the latest research on myopia control since the literature is continuously changing? Oh my gosh, such an important part of our job, right? As described of any of the things that we're managing, like we're responsible to manage, you know, so many different ocular health conditions. Probably for myopia control, one of the best ways would be to um, stay connected with associations that have a focus on it. And so, you know, the Myopia Institute, um, meetings like Vision by Design, the Global Special Lens Symposium, we actually announced this year that we'll have a full meeting now that's um, kind of a branch of the GSLS that's specific just for myopia. That's how big it is. And so um, by staying connected through these associations and every couple of years, there's always new stuff that comes out. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been a blast. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much for coming. We appreciate it. Awesome. Hey. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.